1: In a world where knowledge has become a commodity, this podcast is designed to give you something more access to the experience of a successful CEO who has already walked the path. So join your host, Martin Moore, who will unlock and bring to life your own leadership experiences and accelerate your journey to leadership excellence. Hey there, and welcome to episode 161 of the No Bullshit Leadership Podcast. This episode, a no-bullshit interview with Martin G. Moore and Riaz Megji. Now, I know I sound a little different to your usual host, but I wanted to do a podcast takeover this week and celebrate the publication of Marty's book, No Bullshit Leadership. Today is publication day, and this episode is one of the most personal and candid interviews that Marty has ever done. And I would know, I've listened to every single one over the past three years. The audio from today's episode, which you'll notice is a pretty long one, almost an hour, was taken from the official book launch event that we ran this morning. We were incredibly fortunate to have keynote speaker and author, Riaz Megji, diving into the nitty-gritty with Martin in a no-holds-barred, no-bullshit interview. I also wanna take this opportunity to say how proud I am of my dad. He's not gonna hear this until it goes live and by then it's gonna be too late to change. So I am gonna take this opportunity to embarrass him a little bit. When I convinced him to leave his CEO gig and start this business with me, he didn't doubt me for a second. He backed me 100%, believed in me and made me feel like my vision for your CEO mentor wasn't just a pipe dream. It was a certainty that we were gonna build together. I cannot tell you the anxiety that I had a few months after he quit his job thinking, holy shit, I've just made him quit his CEO gig to start this with me. And I actually have no idea if I can do this, if I can create compelling content from his knowledge that people are actually going to resonate with. Anxiety aside, Marty supported me as I've learned how to be a CEO, how to make difficult decisions and lead. He is the most generous, kind-hearted, optimistic and positive person that I've ever met He sounds bubbly and fun on the podcast, and that is exactly what he's like in real life. If I'm ever worried about something with the business or in my personal life, he just makes me feel like I've got this. He's there to support me, but he believes in me that I know what to do and that I'm stronger than I think. And because I'm the one who reads the 20 to 30 emails and social media DMs that we get every day thanking him for his generosity of knowledge, I know that that's the impact that he has on all of you as well our podcast listeners, those who are going to read the book and the students who join us every year for Leadership Beyond the Theory. He truly cares about making a difference in the world to each individual who needs it and I will continue to do everything in my power to help him impact even more people. He's not only an incredible leader and mentor, he's the world's best dad and I love him so much. Marty, you deserve every bit of success coming your way from this book. It's truly going to change the way leaders around the world think about leadership. And I just couldn't be prouder of you. Okay, I'll get off my soapbox. If you haven't got yourself a copy of the book, please support us by purchasing it from any online retailer, but make sure you head to our website, which I'll put in the show notes to claim the book bonuses as well. I hope you enjoy this interview as much as I did. And please, once you've read the book, let us know what you thought on an amazon.com review or on social media. That's going to help us to reach even more leaders. All right, let's get into it.
2: this is your moment. This is your moment. Uh, Congratulations, first and foremost. Awesome to be here with you for the official launch of No Bullshit Leadership. How does this feel, man, to have this book in your hands and and now ready to release it to the world?
0: Yeah, thank you so much, Riaz. It feels fantastic because as you know, as an author, it's a long journey. Uh, It takes a long time to put this together and a lot of people get involved in it. It's not just me. And so uh, to have this thing in my hand now is just sensational. Um, It feels great. It looks great. And most importantly, what's inside, I'm really, really happy with, which um, I'm glad to be able to say, because I don't know, I've read it maybe eight or 10 times uh, since I first wrote the book and delivered the final manuscript. And I still like reading it. So that's a pretty good sign, right? Because I'm pretty hard on myself as a critic.
2: And it's a good sign, too, when you just have it in your hands on standby. Have you let go of this book since opening it up from the box and, and seeing it for the first time?
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's such a good feeling. And uh, Kathy took a video of me cutting the box open. Um, UPS packs really hard. So it took me a while to get through the ha, ha, the cellophane, but it was good.
2: Well, it's a great book. Uh, we, we've got it here on the shelf. I was lucky enough uh, to get an advanced copy and really dive into it. And one of the first things I love to do is go to that dedication page for authors, because it's such a personal touch as an author. You put all of this work into releasing something to the world. And your dedication, I wrote this down, to every leader with the courage to be better. And I love how you make it about the audience right out of the gate. What does courage look like, Marty, in this era right now of remote setups and pandemic uncertainty?
0: I don't think courage has changed just because of the modern issues that we're facing, Riaz. Courage has always been about doing the right thing when it needs to be done, just because it's right. And not being overwhelmed by self-interest or the other drivers that force us sometimes to take the path of least resistance. So for me, when I thought about the dedication, it was really all about what I want leaders to get out of this. What I want the people who start at page one and get to page 292 and put that book down, is to say, I feel as though I can move forward now. I feel as though I'm better positioned to do the hard work of leadership because leadership is hard work. And so this is really what I was getting at right from the start. Uh, And when I started to think about who I dedicate the book to, so many people have contributed to where I am and how my career has panned out and unfolded. And of course, the people very close to me have been so supportive of me during this process. But really, it comes down to the leaders of the world, because this is what we're trying to do.
2: And and we're going to touch on those principles. We're going to touch on on these moments that you've had in your career to get to this point and now be this mentor helping leaders rise up. But this word courage kind of resonates if we look back at your personal story. Because at some point for all of us, we've gone through a defining moment where you have to make a tough decision and go a different direction in your life. And, And take us back to your university days because courage showed up at an early age for you when you had to make the decision, do you continue on or do you drop out? Yeah
0: that was a tough decision for me. Um, Fortunately I helped to make it myself through having really poor grades and so some of that choice was taken away from me which was good. But I made choices every day and I think the thing about where we end up in life is that all of the decisions and choices we make, big, small, little, immaterial, informal, formal, they all contribute to where we are. They're just cumulative. And that was one of those early choices that I made that I look back on and think well it probably wasn't the best choice I could have made but it set me on a path that allowed me to discover a whole lot of different things that then I capitalised on and moved forward with. Uh, So I have no regrets about it, but it was really tough because education was what my family was about. Uh, I'm one of five children, and my parents sacrificed pretty much everything they could have done for themselves personally to make sure that the five of us had the best education that money could possibly buy. Now, they gave us that, and then I turn up at university and squander it. So there was a lot of guilt uh, and a lot of um, feelings of failure in doing that. And my parents handled it remarkably well, uh, given the fact that many would have um, excommunicated me from the family. But still, it was that thing that, that really drove me forward to say, I can't squander what I've been given. And that's been a theme for me right throughout my career. I can't squander these talents that I've been fortunate enough to possess and that my parents have invested heavily so that I could have.
2: And as you built that new sense of drive, knowing that you can't squander this, the interesting part of, about your story, it, it, even book aside of seeing your roles of navigating through uncertainty at an early age with the education piece, you've got this beautiful family you've built, marathon runner, sea, sea level roles, but purpose for you wasn't discovered until four years ago. That's right. How does that happen of of how you're able to achieve that level of success and then not hit what true purpose is until just four years back?
0: That's a really good question, Riaz, because there's a big distinction between what drove me during my career and where I am now. And I think in the early parts of my career, I was driven and I was driven to achieve and I was driven to excel. And part of that was about me proving that I was good enough proving that I could do what I'd set out to do, and proving that I was worthy as a human. What I'm doing now, with my real purpose, is showing what happens when I'm allowing myself to be drawn. And instead of being driven, I'm now being drawn, which is a subtle but really important distinction. And I'm being drawn towards the thing that is my true purpose in life, which is to improve the quality of leaders globally. That's, that's why I was put on this planet. I didn't realise that until much later in my life. But I realized it at, I think, exactly the right point where I was able to do something about the fact that I discovered my purpose and I now wanted to invest in it.
2: Well, that's definitely clear going through this book and this journey and switching over to this role of mentor that many look up to you. Uh, People watching this right now are, are, are probably grateful for the lessons they've learned along the way and especially ones that they get to read that you've articulated in this book. And here's the thing that I appreciate, especially reading books about leadership, because there's so much out there and it's a challenge to cut through the noise, but what you do uh, very succinctly is you cut through platitudes, you cut through rhetoric, you cut through the clutter and you get to the point. And one of the biggest points that, that stand out right out of the gate from this book is the biggest problem with leadership today. And given your range of experience, what is top of mind for you of what needs to change, especially right now?
0: That's a great question, Riaz. I think what needs to change about leadership is the focus on the people and the results. What we've had so far in the last probably 10, 15 years or so is a really big influx of content about what we need to become as aspirational virtues of leadership. We need to be humble and transparent and fallible. We need to have integrity. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with this. But what happens for most people is they listen to it. They feel warm and comfortable when they hear it. And then they go away and they do absolutely nothing. They don't improve for themselves or for their people or for their organisations. And so what that results in is a whole lot of people running around believing their own bullshit. They think they're great leaders because they've listened to this stuff and they go, yeah, that's me, I identify with the fallibility gene and so I'm a great leader. But you talk to the people who work for them, the difference is stark. It's not like that at all. And so I want leaders who can lead people to lift people up to drive them to achieve results and to give them that deep sense of satisfaction that comes from achieving difficult things because this is where, in my view, all self-esteem comes from. You'll only get that in your work life if a leader lifts you up and stretches you to get that.
2: Marty, you know what stands out from, from what you're sharing right there is, and, and this this kind of goes back to something your social media recently shared about, what what was it like working for Marty? And you're speaking to, and this person spoke to, the bias towards action. You know, It's great to talk about these virtues and, and share a message, but it's also important to take this action and do something with it. But in that, th- there's, a, there's a common pitfall of trying to, to, to fix something too quickly before you actually feel out what the problem is and then you end up fixing the wrong problem altogether. How do you balance that of identifying what the issue is and then knowing that you've diagnosed it properly before you jump to action where you're giving advice to the wrong problem altogether?
0: Mm. Yes, it can be tricky and this is all about judgement and experience and insight into problems. What I found over the years is that most leaders take far too long to make their decisions and they take far too long to act because they're looking for consensus or they're looking for approval or they're looking for support from above. And having the courage to act decisively when you know that something is right is something that really changes the way your team works and your organisation benefits from it. So what I found over the years was that, uh, particularly when I was put into situations where I didn't control the timing, there was a crisis, and the timing was driven by a camera crew that was shoving a a camera and a microphone in my face, or a regulator who'd found some um, things that we'd done that weren't inside the regulatory framework and they were auditing us, or an asset failure, like things like that where You don't have control of the timing. And what I learned when I'd run through a number of these different things and led them is that my decisions in those circumstances were at least as good as the decisions I made when I had all the time in the world. And so when I realized this, I thought, what do I need to do to make better decisions faster? And how will that benefit the team when I can create some real momentum, when I can make really good decisions based on the facts I have at hand I don't procrastinate, I don't avoid, I don't seek approval. I'm not a guy who's looking to be liked. I mean it's great if we're liked and I love to be loved but let's face it, I need to be respected for doing a great job as a leader and bringing people through with me. And so speed of decision making, if you do it the right way, tapping into the right people, tapping into the right data, considering the right implications of all of the risks around it, that's what makes a good decision and you can do it a lot faster than you think.
2: Well, you're speaking to the agility of leadership but i also heard you you know touch on what i believe to be one of the greatest principles coming out of this book respect before approval and leadership from all of the experts and leaders i've interviewed over the years one of the greatest assets and skill sets they possess is letting go of likability and making those tough decisions bring us into that because difficult conversations especially right now need to be had and some of the research that you know i've uncovered over the years you know finds that one in four leaders avoid difficult conversations for up to six months some even up to two years and we're creating cultures of avoidance so how do we lean into that with this respect before approval and facilitate constructive tension where as you say in the book you can redirect uh, conflict to curiosity Yes,
0: and I think the research areas that says one in four uh, avoid conversations for up to six months, I think that's massively understated. Uh, and, of course, when you ask people about uh, their avoidance habits, they will always look on the optimistic upside of what they actually do. What i found over the years is that many more leaders will avoid conversations than you realise, but they rationalise. Now, as humans, we're driven by approval and affiliation. And it's a really large part of our reptilian brain that says we need to be accepted. And so what happens is that naturally, when we seek to avoid, we then support that with rationalizations that say, here's the reason why I can't have a difficult conversation. Here's the reason why I shouldn't make that decision that I feel as I should make. So we rationalize and then we start believing our own bullshit. And in each chapter in No Bullshit Leadership, as you know, I start the chapter with the bullshit we believe around the topic that I'm just about to treat. And so I talk specifically and call out those bullshit things that we say, hmm, okay, um, here's the sort of person I am, here's how I am in terms of my resilience or my ability to handle conflict, and I'm doing okay. And I sign up to these cliches and platitudes that convince me and reinforce the fact that I'm doing okay. And so we really need to cut through all of that. Now, that was just my way of saying, I bet the research is understated. But When it comes to respect before popularity, it's 90% will and 10% skill. That's it. 90% will. And so it's a mind game. How do you force yourself to step into difficult situations when they need to be stepped into? How do you discipline yourself as an individual to not avoid or procrastinate? And what I do in the book is that I give a number of frames that you can look through that help to change your perspective. Now, the number one point for all of this is, you need to be able to put yourself in someone else's shoes. If you're in your own head, worrying about what something means to you, what the implications are, whether it's threatening, whether you're going to be unliked by your people, all of those things that go round and round in our head when we're facing into doing something difficult, you can completely get rid of that just by focusing on the other person. So when I started having to face into these conversations that were really tough, What I do is to say to myself, okay, I can be round in my head about all the things that could go wrong and I could get locked down in my own fear and apprehension and misgivings or I can think about it from the other person's perspective. What if I don't have this conversation with them? I'm actually robbing them of an opportunity to improve. I'm stealing their future from them because I'm not stepping in and having the courage to have the conversation that I know they need to hear right now. And so that is the way that you start to get your head around doing things that are uncomfortable for you because you see how important they are for the individuals you're leading and the team. And if you take your duty of care as a leader really seriously, then you're gonna have no problem doing that, it just takes practice. It just takes enough to become comfortable.
2: And and all of this is so valuable as you speak to the importance of empathy right now uh, to build trust in this hybrid reality. Can you take us back to your, the first experience you remember where you had to have a difficult conversation and it just totally went sideways? Because there are some up-and-coming leaders that are probably watching this, looking at you as the Yoda thinking, I wanna be where Marty's at one day, but here's where I'm at, and they're just starting. What do you remember about your first difficult conversation and what that really taught you to, to articulate all of these great principles?
0: Riaz, I had what I like to call a pie-in-the-face moment. I'd done probably, I don't know, dozens of difficult conversations thinking I was actually really good at it. But there was one conversation that I had when I'd been leading for quite a while that stuck in my head because it was such an eye-opener for me. It was an epiphany. I was giving some feedback to a person who was underperforming in the team and I was really giving her the ultimatum. Either you step up and do your job or I'll get someone who can. That's it. Right? It's pretty straightforward. You work it out. And her reaction to that was what surprised me, because she said, I'm so sorry. I didn't even realise that I wasn't meeting your expectations. I'm really embarrassed. I'm, I'm actually devastated by this. And I'd thought that she had everything she needed to go away and do her job. But as a leader, I'd completely failed her. I hadn't spent any of the time explaining to her what the level of standard was that I was after. I hadn't given her clarity around what the objectives were. I hadn't coached her, I hadn't given her any guidance, and when she was falling off the rails, I certainly didn't go and support her. And so, obviously, we're gonna get to a crunch point where she's gonna be blindsided by the fact that I think she's not doing the job the right way. And when that happened, that really hit me. That's the thing where I said to myself, oh, wow, well, I've completely missed this. I've blamed her for something that's at least as much my own fault. And so that's when I realized that my whole leadership style and skill base had to change. I was arrogant. I was ego-driven. It was all about me. And from that point on, I promised myself I was going to be a better leader. That, that lit a fire in me. And so I was able to take that forward. And then when it came to difficult conversations, I did something really weird, which you'll appreciate, Riaz. I started to listen. And I started Ooh. to listen to the other... I know. I know. What a breakthrough, right? <laughs> but Huge. But, but I started, I started to listen and started to hear what people were saying to me, and I started to understand more about what was going on. And quite often, I'd have someone who was a, actually a pretty good performer who was just having a bad trot for a week or two for certain things that were going on in their personal life. But until I learned to listen and to absorb that and to be present with someone, I didn't even pick up on it. And so I'd just say, hey, you used to be good, now you're shit. What are you doing? And that isn't very helpful to them or to me or to what I'm trying to do with the team.
2: Marty, you're speaking to so many relevant themes right there. Obviously the point of empathy, I'm a big believer of assertive empathy to navigate those difficult conversations, but you're talking about listening. And in this culture of distraction that we live in, sometimes we're too smart for our own, our own good because you know, research shows that our brains can absorb what, four to 500 words per minute. You know, the average per person is speaking at about 125 words per minute. So all of us leaders, have to navigate ourselves to cut out technological distraction, emotional distraction, maybe daydreaming when you're trying to have these important conversations. What do you find is the secret? And some of the common pitfalls leaders have when they say, hey, I'm a great listener, but they're actually missing out on the element of connection. What is a great listener?
0: Well, I think listening, of course, is more than just hearing the words, Riaz, as you know. Uh, For me, I started to listen a lot better when I started to study people. Now, I've, I've not been someone who's a big meditator. I haven't ridden the wave of uh, mindfulness and you know, being present in the moment, uh, as many have over the last few years. But what I found for me was all about studying someone, their body language, their facial expressions, looking for those tiny little changes that you see, the subtle things. And that really develops uh, emotional intelligence quickly. Now, I've actually been aware of this since I was quite young. Uh, when i was working in bars after i dropped out of university i found that it was critical to be able to sum someone up very very quickly in terms of their mood their approach whether they were happy sad drunk whatever the case was and i had to be able to see from 10 meters in a dark room whether there was going to be a problem with them and so i learned to study people their body language their reactions how they were moving and i carried that through so i've been a bit of a student of that for many many years but I think when it comes down to one-on-one conversations, it's really important to be able to sit down opposite someone and just concentrate, just focus, and to not have distractions. So no laptops, no phones, nothing there except you and the other person and the desk in between. And what you're trying to do is to connect. And this is what I've tried to do so much over the last, you know, probably 30, 40 years, is to, when I'm in a conversation, look at someone and study them. Understand those little shifts and to be able to respond to those and ask questions about them. So sometimes I'd ask a question like, oh, I see that made you a bit uncomfortable. How do you feel about that? Or uh, other times I'll say, oh, I can see you're really proud of that achievement. I can see it in your face, that's awesome. And so it's just being able to read those cues and then respond to them and verbalize them so that you and the person that you're talking to have that immediate feedback loop. I find that really, really beneficial. And of course,
2: that's all about the listening. It's all about listening and that, that is a gift you give someone with attention. And as you describe that, I think about interviewing subjects and that whole notion of listening with your eyes and why, as you describe body language, it it is so important. Uh, We're fortunate enough to, uh, to, to have a mentor in common in uh, the great communication coach, Nick Morgan. And he said something over, he said something that really resonated that gesture precedes conscious thought. And I've carried that with me over the years. And as you describe that, as you're having that one-on-one conversation before that person's uttered a word, they have spoken in, in such profound ways with their bodies, with those micro uh, expressions. And I think that, that attention we can give in those moments, especially diff- difficult conversations is so, uh, so valuable. Marty, you, also, you cover off the notion of work-life balance. And in your story, anytime I hear work-life balance come up, it is such a subjective equation because people have a different set of priorities, but your story is unique because your first C-level role came at a time where you were navigating a divorce. So you had a professional transition, you had a personal transition. Can you take us back into this time and how you were able to manage both uh, powerful changes in, in your life?
0: I had a lot going on back then, Riaz, in that particular time. Uh, i just moved cities, which is a major event. I had my first C-level role. I was going through divorce, and I was studying my MBA. And apart from that, I had probably about a a a two-and-a-half to three-hour commute every day to the office. There were some nights when I thought I was going to fall asleep at the wheel and not make it home, trust me. But during that time, what I realised is that I can only give so much attention to each thing at any point. I'm I'm a pretty simple guy, right? I focus on one thing above everything else. This was one of the few moments in my life where I had to focus on multiple things. And one of my biggest regrets in my life uh, over everything is walking out and not taking my daughters with me when I walked out. That was it. That's the only thing I'd do over, is that thing. And for me, I found that getting through that, while it was stressful, while it was almost breaking point for me, It was something I needed to do and it gave me a huge amount of confidence because every time I wanted to do something to drop some of this pressure, to take it off my plate and have that release valve, I said to myself, well, hang on a minute, I I can give up something now. I can give up my MBA Uh, and that would have been a pattern, right? Dropping out of undergrad was okay. Dropping out of an MBA, yeah, that's habit forming. So I thought I can drop it, I can come back to it later. Uh, My chances of that weren't very good. But I figured if I can't handle this pressure now, where I wanna go as a CEO of a major business, I'm certainly not gonna be able to cope with that. So I better just suck this up and work out how to get through it. And there were times where, you know, on only a couple of hours sleep a night for too many nights in a row, I'd say to my assistant at the office, I'd say, Kellyanne, I need 10 minutes, no calls, no visitors, just 10 minutes. And I closed my door and I put my head down on the desk and get 10 minutes sleep just so that I can make it to the end of the day. And yes, it was stressful, but coming out of that I thought, is there anything I'm not going to be able to cope with? Is there anything I really can't handle? And so that was a huge confidence builder for me.
2: Marty, I, I, I appreciate your honesty when you talk about transitions uh, with your C-level role, uh, obviously what happened with the divorce. But this notion of work-life balance is so subjective because people have a different set of priorities. and. Can you tell us of how you've kind of navigated this or maybe where you've struggled in your own life with achieving this so-called and coveted work-life balance? Here
0: is. I wouldn't say that I'm the poster child for work-life balance. Now, I think the term is really loaded. And for me, I think it's just life. Life happens. And at any point in time, you've got to pay attention to the things that are most important to you right then and now and so for me there's been times where I've been incredibly engaged and driven and moving forward in terms of my career and in those times I've often lost sight of my health. Uh, I remember a particular job I had working for an insurance company in Australia where we had a particularly tough project. I was traveling a lot I was spending a week in Brisbane Australia and then a week in Auckland New Zealand, week about and I did that for about 18 months to two years and during that time I was working so many hours each week and traveling so much that I let all my, ha- all my habits slip. My, my exercise habit, my eating habit, my drinking habit, it was the worst it was ever gonna get. And I came out of that role with an incredible achievement for me and the team and the organization, but I look back and I've gone, this is the unhealthiest I've been in my life. I actually put on 30 pounds in two years and I had to work hard to get it back off. But because I'd completely let go of that and got out of the habit, and this is all about good habits, I got out of the habit, it really came home to roost. And that was a time where it was a a, a massive realisation to me that I had to be able to do something different. And now when I reflect back on that period, what options did I have? I mean, this was a time-critical implementation of all of the core systems of of this niche insurer. And it had to be done by a certain date. But as I look back... There were so many more options I had, there were so many more choices I could have made, there were so many more ways I could have addressed that problem, but I was so driven to get the right result that I didn't let myself look at those options. It would have been easy to go to the CEO and back to the board to say, okay, this is going to kill someone, starting with me, and we've got to find another way to do this. And if you just inject a small additional amount of capital and we, re- we slip the deadline by three to four months, it's going to be a completely different proposition. But here I was thinking about on time, on budget, full functionality, high quality, and I wouldn't give myself a break. I wouldn't let myself have permission to ease off. Today, I I do that completely differently. And there's no way I'd put on 30 pounds in five years in the space of 18 months, no way.
2: Who helps with that breakthrough though? Because sometimes when you're in it and you're so driven, you've got blinders on. Who helped you break through and say, Marty, Take a look at what's going on here. Is it worth it? Who helped you work through that?
0: No one. I got to the end of it. It finished, that was it. (laughs) I had to actually get to the end of that and stand up and realize what the toll was. I didn't realize at the time. I just kept pushing through, doing the things I needed to do that I figured was gonna make this thing successful. And away I went. And when I came out the other end of it, it, it hit me like a pie in the face what that toll was, the price I'd paid for that. And then I just started to improve and started to change things. And that was when things got better. But now that's given me also a contrast and a level of perspective that for me serves me very well. So if I was faced with a similar situation now, I'd just handle it completely differently. And I'd take different choices and I'd have different conversations and I'd set different demands for myself and the team, which are more realistic, more sensible, and have less of a personal toll while trying to
2: still achieve the professional goals. And team being the key word there. If we wanna support each other, we need that honesty, that trust you've built. I think in this book, you talk about the fact if you have trust with someone, you, you can essentially say anything to that person because they know you've got their back. And if you look at teams you've worked with o- over the years, uh, <laughs> and this isn't discounting all the great teams you work with, but is there a standout team that, that you really remember of the chemistry was just on point and you were able to just back each other up and lift each other up?
0: Yeah, there is one that comes to mind, I think, in particular, and that was the um, sales and marketing team that I ran for a um, large rail freight logistics company. And the reason it was such a good team, don't get me wrong, it was not all beer and Skittles. So when we talk about lifting each other up and supporting each other, sure, there's part of that. But really good teams have tension in them. They have constructive, productive tension where you're constantly wrestling to try and get the best outcomes. And for me, I worked with a colleague, brilliant individual by the name of Andrew McDonald, who was my peer. He held the commercial side of this portfolio and I held the sales and marketing side. We worked together with our teams to produce absolutely stunning results in a two year period. uh, Results that everyone had said we couldn't achieve. And, uh, you know, even the financial press over here said, there's no way this company can win these contracts. And we did. But there was a huge amount of constructive tension. There was a huge amount of hard work, but ultimately underpinning all of that was trust. And we let the people that we had in their roles do their jobs. We didn't step in. We didn't overfunction for them. We didn't try and control it. We let them do the jobs they were hired to do. And the negotiators who ran one one of these particular deals were just sensational. And I trust them implicitly, and this was the contract that everyone said we couldn't win. Yet they'd come back from the negotiating room, and the lead negotiator would say to me, Marty, I reckon we're going to win the whole lot. And I'd say, well, Mick, what are you basing that on? And he'd tell me what he thought and sensed based on the fact that he's in the room with these customers every day. And he's there talking to them and seeing how they're reacting, and he's the one making the judgment calls. And so whereas I had the executives above me and around me saying, there's no way we can win this, I'm going... Don't worry, we've got this. Mix told me, he's in the room every day, we've got this. And so it's characterized by the constructive tensions, letting people liberate their expertise so that you're getting the most out of them for what they can actually give you, and staying in your lane. And that seems to work really, really well in most circumstances. That team had it down pat, and it was a sensational team.
2: Marty, within team culture and having each other's backs, sometimes mistakes can be made. And you double down on the power of accountability with no bullshit leadership. How can you effectively, as a leader, call people up instead of calling people out to establish accountability, but still know that you're on the same side of the challenge in front of you?
0: Culturally, this is a difficult thing to achieve, Riaz. When we think about the type of culture we want to create, it's a no blame, no excuses culture. And we want people to feel confident that they can actually have a go and try some stuff and be innovative and work towards goals that they might just fall short of, knowing that they're safe to do it. Now, I can say to you all I like, don't worry, Riaz, it's okay to fail, I'll have your back, and you're still not quite going to believe me, because there'll be too much experience in your background that says, I don't know about Marty, I don't know what happens when push comes to shove. And so it's really important that you go through a couple of those cycles where someone can fall over and not quite meet the targets they're meant to meet, and for you to say, "Okay, that's no problem. What happened? How did we do it? How do we avoid it again? What do we need to do from here? So it becomes a process of I'm not going to get down in the hole with you and commiserate. I'm not going to stand above you and beat you, but we're going to sit side by side and work out what the best path of action is now. And so that type of approach when you have the failures is really important. Now what you're actually looking for is a culture of excellence over perfection. You don't want people to be frozen by this false sense of trying to perfect things. That's mainly out of fear because they don't want to get stuff wrong. You want people moving and acting and progressing. And in order to do that, you've really got to show them that excellence is important. Now there's a little story I tell in the book about an executive of mine who came to me and said, I'm working on this strategy it's going to take a while and we're getting some top flight consultants in to help us with it. And I'm going to deliver it in three or four months. I said, okay, that's fine. No drama at all. But next Friday week, two weeks from today, I want you to come back to my office. We're going to get around the whiteboard and you can show me what you've got so far. Now, the look on his face was unbelievable. He, he didn't expect me to do that. He's going, this is a four-month job. You, know, you want to see me in two weeks? And the whole thing that I wanted to get across was... I just want to see where you're going." I said to him, put it on the back of a table napkin or a beer coaster. I don't care. Just bring in some scratchings that we can talk about so that you can get confidence that you're on the right track. I can tell you if there's anything material that you're missing and we can work from there. What you'll find happens after that meeting that we have in two weeks' time, everything's going to be better than that. And so it's getting people used to showing you outputs that are ill-formed or incomplete and letting them realize that they can do that. And you can say to them, hey, that's awesome. That's exactly the direction we should be heading in. And all they've done is to make a few scratchings on a whiteboard. And so giving people that sense of excellence over perfection, of having ill-formed outputs, and emphasizing that the most important thing is not perfection, it's momentum. Because a decision that's 80% right today is infinitely better than a decision that's 85% right next week, which in turn is infinitely better than a decision that's 90% right in a month. So you've really got to get this sense of motion and momentum in your team if you really want to get things moving well. This is agility.
2: And that momentum is fed by what you're describing as this gesture of consistency. And in this era of building trust and connection or having excellence over perfection, consistency cultivates that trust. The notion of trust right now, Marty, is really interesting as you're describing these team dynamics. One, it eliminates the guessing game so people know they're on the right track. But how do you feel in this era, in new reality, hybrid reality of remote setups, leadership needs to shift to continuously build trust and connection as people are all over the place and we don't get that physical connection that we've had uh, all these years leading up to the pandemic?
0: Yeah, and this is a great question, Riaz, because what we've found over the last 18 months or so is that it's relatively easy to work from home, but it's much more difficult to lead from home because you have fewer opportunities to build a connection. You have fewer opportunities to gauge your people's perspectives and moods and where they're actually up to at any given point in time. So I think what we're going to go back to is some sort of hybrid world, and this is what most of the experts are saying, where there'll be some working from home for sure mixed in, But there'll be critical times where people have to attend a work site, whether it's an office or or another location. And what happens in those moments, what you do as a leader in those moments and how you take advantage of those opportunities will determine how successful you can be. Now, one of the things I say is that if you were a great leader in 2019, you're going to be a great leader in 2022. It's, It's not in doubt. The thing is, though, it's become harder with this physical dislocation. So if you're a leader who struggled with that personal connection when you were face-to-face, you've got no chance over Zoom or Google Hangouts. You've got no chance. So really, those who are good leaders are going to prosper, and they'll find that they'll adapt relatively easily. The number one thing I'd say, though, is make sure that you take every opportunity you can to be with your people and to use that time wisely.
2: I'm going to throw this question at you because this, this really allows character to come out, and it's a question I throw at leaders and have thrown at leaders over the past couple of decades. Uh, You're a big advocate of empowering conversations. If you were to look at your life personally and professionally, what would you describe as your most important conversation that brought you to this point today? Having the roles of being a family man, a C-level executive, now an author, what would you define as your most important conversation?
0: I could probably narrow it down to the top 50 if that helps, Riaz. <laughs> no
2: pressure, right? No
0: pressure. We, we got plenty so, <laughs> of time. So many, so many conversations I've found to be um, able to alter my perspective. And that's, as a person, that's what I love, right? I love someone being able to change the way I think about something. And whenever anyone's been able to do that, that's really stuck with me. Uh, probably a series of conversations that I would say has been most impactful is that way back in 2007, I was mentored by a gentleman by the name of Colin Clark, And Colin actually was the first one to expose me to the concept of being drawn to what you love, rather than being driven to what you think you need to do. And that was the first time I came up against that concept. And through a series of conversations with him over a period of time, it completely altered the way I looked at my life. The reason for this is because I'm an analytical guy. I was science, maths, analytics, and I was really happy in the black and white world of certainty. And what Colin was able to open my eyes to was that there is so much uncertainty and so much that we don't understand, but we still have the ability to tap into it and to actually do something productive with it. And being able to work out through use of imagination rather than intellect what I might want in my life was a game changer for me. And that's really driven everything that's happened since then. And so whether it comes to meeting my beautiful wife, Kathy, whether it comes to setting off and embarking upon this venture, Your CEO Mentor, and writing this book, it's really about what is it that drives me? What makes me happy? What is it that fulfills me? And why am I here? What's my true nature and purpose? And uh, funnily enough, even though those conversations happened you know, 14 years ago, it's only in the last four years that I was able to put it into action. Because up until then, I didn't know what the vehicle was going to be that would fulfill this drawing of where I needed to be. And so I had a 10 years, I wouldn't quite say in the wilderness, but I had 10 years of doing things that ultimately led to where I needed to be
2: today. Mm, I love it. And you know what I also love is you're recognizing the people that brought you up. And the power of appreciation goes a long way. I I heard you mention Kathy. Uh, I know Kathy is on set there. Kathy, if you want to pop on camera and say hi, I would love to see you. But uh, Marty, tell me about Kathy and the greatest gift she has given you as a partner, because she sees everything in your life. She does.
0: Uh, Let's start with her keeping me grounded. Uh, Other people who see me on social media and listen to the podcast, they see a side of Marty. Kathy sees me warts and all and she's not afraid to tell me and I love someone who will give me honest, uh, direct feedback, which she does, I can count on that from her. Uh, and many of us can count on that from, from their spouses. What I would say though, is that what I experienced with Kathy is complete unconditional trust, love and support. And my acknowledgement of her in the book actually goes to this. It's, it's her unconditional love and support for me, knowing all of my weaknesses, all of my flaws all of those little nasty habits that I have that no one else gets to see, and she supports me anyway and loves me unconditionally, which that's the greatest gift anyone can give you. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm so blessed to have that in my life.
2: Now, is there any chance for all of your loyal followers to see a cameo from Kathy? Just a wave, maybe hear from Kathy. I'm totally putting Kathy on the spot with this. <laughs> is it possible? You have
1: Riez, hey! but I will come and say hello. Thank you very much for having me, so... <laughs>
2: Oh, Kathy, it's so great to see you on camera. Can you tell us what, what this is like? I mean, you've seen the evolution of what Marty's been able to do, what this book is. When, when you've gone through it, you see him now. Uh, what's your impression of this all?
1: Well, first off, I'm super, super proud of him. I mean, how couldn't I be? Um, I think when he embarked on this with his daughter, Emma, they just went for it. I mean, that's that's all I can say to describe it. They knew what they wanted. It was a process, it had to, you know, be thought out, but they never gave up. They just kept going and saying, you know, we're gonna make this happen and they've done wonders. And I am really, really proud of both of them. Um, I have a wonderful relationship with Emma, my stepdaughter as well. And um, I just, I I, I couldn't be happier for what they're doing.
2: Beautiful, it's a beautiful partnership. You guys wanna hug it out, give a kiss? I mean, like, we're we're here.
0: (laughs) Oh,
2: look at that! <laughs> and, that's it. And, yeah. by the, and by the way, that was
0: completely spontaneous. And Kathy's going to kill me later for having to get no. on camera because we've just been through a rainstorm in Boston. So that's
2: okay. Kathy, you look stunning. I love it. I just totally put you on the spot. Thanks for coming on camera and playing with this. And it just shows the partnership and, and family bond that you guys all have. So thank you for doing that. No. Uh, we can release you. We can release you now, Kathy. Between, <laughs> Thanks, Queen <both. between laughs> <of> quality <laughs> <Yeah>. control. <laughs> I'm going to throw this final question at you because your loyal followers have been excited about this book, Uh, Leadership Beyond the Theory, you've been the Yoda. You've been the Yoda of sorts, uh, helping people rise up. But how do you motivate people to give more of themselves than even they thought was possible? In
0: a leadership sense, when you're actually leading a team of people, stretching people to give more than they thought is all about understanding what their limits are. And as I like to say, even your very, very best people on any given day, they're going to give you, I don't know, 80, 85% of their effort or what they think is 100%, but they always have so much more in them because I was like that. And it took a leader for me who was going to draw me out and say, "I I know you've got more in you. I know you can actually deliver this faster or better. I know you can actually sort this problem out, even though it's highly complex. I know you can do all of that and I trust you to do it. And what they did for me was to think to myself, okay, well, if the boss trusts me, I guess I'm gonna be able to do it. And then I would do whatever it takes because I didn't want to disappoint my boss. I didn't want to disappoint my team. One of the worst things you can do is set irrational goals for your people. And if I wasn't going to sign up to something and then absolutely burn the boats, right? We're going forward, We, we win or we die, let's get this done. And that sort of attitude is what can really inspire and empower people to move. And some people don't like it, they're very, very scared of it at first, but if you can manage to do that just once, then the second time it's easier. And once you show someone what it feels like to do something they didn't think they could actually achieve, and then to go ahead and do it anyway, that builds huge confidence in them, huge confidence. And that's when they become much better as people too, because they don't feel the fear and the threats and the disappointment that comes when they fall over and they don't achieve what they want to achieve. What it builds in this is this sense of, I can do this, I've got the support to do this, and I'm going to have a crack at it. And if we don't quite get there, hey, aim for the moon and you might at least shoot out the light on the telegraph pole. But if you aim for the light on the telegraph pole, you're probably going to shoot yourself in the foot. So let's aim high, let's go as hard as we can. And if we fall just short, that's okay. That's We'll still get a hell of a lot farther than
2: we would have otherwise. You are sharing powerful words that are gonna help us rise up. This book is such uh, an excellent resource, especially in the time we're in. Uh, Marty, I'm gonna throw this out at you because being an author uh, is, is playing the long game. And if we were to have this conversation a year from now, a lot of people ask me when, when, I, when I first released my book of, hey, how many books did you sell? And I thought, what a miss on that question because the opportunity is to understand how did you impact people? How did you change their life? So if we were to have a conversation a year down the line, what would we be celebrating knowing this book is hitting the world, it's a point of service, what do we want to be celebrating one year from now? We want to be celebrating
0: the fact that anyone who's picked up the book is going to get something out of it that helps them to actually change what they do, to become better leaders because it's got practical tools, and to actually choose to pick up those tools and say, I'm going to use that. I'm going to take this decision-making template and just try it for my next two or three decisions and see if it makes a difference. Or I'm going to use these questions when I'm under pressure. Or I'm going to try the approach of turning my anger and frustration into curiosity when I'm in my next negotiation. So it's people who pick up the tools and say, I'm going to try that. Now, you don't want to pick up 50 things. I'm a massive fan of simplicity and focus. You want to pick up one or two things that you think will make the most difference to you now for your circumstances and try them out and get good at them and go, oh, that worked really well. Let's go back to the book and see what else there is. There's always gonna be something there to pick up and say, here's something I can improve. Here are the techniques and tools for improving it and I wanna get onto that. Now for me, it's all about impact. That's why we're publishing in the US, not Australia. It's all about how big a group of people that we can reach with this because I'm really committed to this concept of changing the way leaders lead globally and the podcast in 70 countries, that's a great way of getting to a bunch of people in different cultures. I'm really surprised that we're in so many countries because I figured, you know, when we started this out, I said to Emma, I said, Australia, New Zealand, US, Canada, South Africa, England, little bit of Europe, that's it, yet we're in 10 times as many countries. Of course, we don't have, you know, a million people in, in those other countries, but we do have people who are picking this up and finding it useful in their culture.
2: Universal Principles. Let's hold it up one more time, Marty. I know you got the book. You sent me one a couple of weeks back. And by the way, it still got that new book smell. I love that. Fresh. I feel wiser just have, having a sniff. Here it is. No bullshit leadership.
0: To tell you the truth, Riaz, I didn't spend a lot of time sniffing it when it came in. I, I don't know. Maybe that's, that's the difference the over in Vancouver there. Who knows, mate?
2: Us <laughs> I, I Canadians, we're weird that way, but you know what?
0: Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm definitely not a book sniffer. <laughs>
2: Now, I'm this weird fetish interviewer out there. Hey, that's the book, Sniffer, from Canada. Hey, either way, proud to do it for your book. It is called No Bullshit Leadership. Marty, proud to know you, proud to be a part of this. Congratulations. It's a life moment. I wish you all the best with the launch and uh, the years ahead. Thanks for your wisdom. Appreciate it, mate. Cheese.
1: How good was that? We would love to hear your feedback on this episode, so feel free to share it on social media. Make sure you tag us at your CEO mentor so that we can personally thank you and use the hashtag #NoBSLeadership. leadership. I'll take one last opportunity now to say, go and grab your copy of No Bullshit Leadership. Get one for a colleague as an early Christmas gift. And I look forward to next week's episode, managing up a cheat sheet. Until then, I know you'll take every opportunity you can to be a no bullshit leader.